Good morning again. As we say multiple times and we mean it, it is so good to have you here with us this morning and to worship and to gather. Uh, I realize that some of you are guests or maybe you just haven't been up here in a while um, and some of you are back up here for the first time. There's communion on that table. It's this little guy right here. It is our COVID safe communion. Um, we are hopefully going to get back to real bread and not styrofoam very, very soon. But for the meantime, this is the way we're going to continue to celebrate. So if you didn't grab one of these on the way in, we don't do a great job of welcoming people at the door and giving directions. Um, and if we run out, Kyle can grab some more for us from the back. Uh, but I think we should have enough over there. So at some point during my sermon, by all means, feel free to run over there and grab what you need if you didn't grab that. Um, I'm going to hop straight into our text this morning. As I mentioned in my prayer, but did not say explicitly at the top, we are uh, celebrating Ascension Sunday this morning. And it is our recognition and moment of talking about the ascension of Christ into heaven. And so hear these words from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. We will read these and see what the Lord has for us this morning. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you've been with us the last few weeks, uh, we've been going through the creed. And in the creed, as we discussed or said this morning and recited this morning, we proclaim that we believe in Jesus, that he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so this week and next week, if you want to, you can sort of... <coughs> Allergies, man. Uh, you can sort of think of these sermons as like creed-adjacent sermons or kind of addendums to what we've been talking about the last five weeks. We preached two whole weeks on the section on the sun, and we didn't even touch ascension and, and other aspects of what we profess. There's so much to what is in that. That is not all that we believe, but it is a starting point 
and a grounding point, as we talked about. And so we're sort of going to continue in that. Next week, we will be in Pentecost. That is the promise of the Spirit that is referenced in Acts 1. In a few days, the Spirit will come. And that's what we're going to talk about next week is Pentecost Sunday. But this morning, we're talking about ascension. Believing in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, who on the third day rose again and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father to come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and to reign over a kingdom that will have no end. Kyle and I talked about this in our Creed series that when he gave the part about Jesus' humanity, the second sermon on the Son, I spoke uh, the first Sunday on the divinity of Jesus that we see laid out in the Creed, and Jesus, uh, Kyle spoke on the humanity. And we made a joke that it's hard sometimes when we're reading this to, to kind of de- delineate where that in accordance with Scripture, like where is it supposed to go? Did Jesus, uh, was he resurrected? And then in accordance with Scripture, ascended into heaven? Or is it Jesus was resurrected in accordance with Scriptures and then ascended into heaven? And I think it matters slightly to understand that because it's really easy for us to lump ascension and resurrection sort of into one thing. Now, what we would ultimately say is that both are within accordance with Scripture. That's not really the debate here, but the debate is where do we kind of break that sentence? Where do we kind of give a pause Because I think even though that we talk about the creed and we do all of these things, and now this is the fifth year in a row we at Mosaic, for those of you keeping score, have observed Ascension Sunday. And yet Ascension can still feel a little weird. When you proclaim that we believe he has ascended, it's one of those phrases, and it's okay if you have these because I have them. There are these moments, these things these words that we say that we know we're supposed to believe, and we just hope that no one ever really asks us what we actually mean by that. For many of us, ascension is one of those things, one of those theological ideas. We totally believe in it. We affirm it. We trust in it. And then if someone's like, yeah, but what do you mean like he ascended into heaven? You're like, dang it, why'd you ask? I didn't want to actually have to defend this because it can be confusing. It's mysterious. We say it and we hope that we can just sort of move on. Before coming to Mosaic, I was never a part of a church that even acknowledged ascension. Like that, that was not something we ever really talked about. It gets lumped in with resurrection and that's about it. But it's important that we sort of pause and recognize that we believe in this act, this moment, this thing. I think we misunderstand for a couple of reasons. At least I have misunderstood it for a couple of different reasons. I think it can be confusing not only because it's mysterious and like we don't fully grasp what is happening in this moment, what it means for us today, here and now, but I think we can also sort of oversimplify it or maybe uh, oversimplify theology, that is, or, or we can even like sort of underrealize some theological ideas that are a bigger conversation to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So I think that sometimes we can sort of oversimplify what it means that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. We do this in really simple ways. Uh, Anna gets frustrated with me because we'll talk to Jameson, and Jameson will say, Jesus lives in my heart. And I'll say, well, technically, buddy, 
The Holy Spirit empowers and quickens your heart. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and he just looks at me with a blank stare. She's like, sometimes you've got to just let him have some simplicity, and we'll explain the complexity as time goes. But there's things like that, right, that we kind of misunderstand. We talk about Jesus living in us, and so we're like, well, how does Jesus live in us? And he's at the right hand of the Father. And in a sake, for sake of understanding, we can sometimes oversimplify things. And I, hear me out. I'm not saying that we are wrong theologically, but we oversimplify it. And it can make then some of these more complex ideas a little harder to wrap our minds around. That's totally normal. We do it in everything. If you've ever taken science classes, you have to sometimes unlearn scientific ideas that you thought you kind of grasped or had an understanding of earlier. Engineering, math, right? This is the frustrating part as you get further into calculus and things. It's like, well, but I thought we were doing it this way. And it's like, well, yeah, that was the way you did it then. But now you've got to do it this more complex way. So it's normal. There's nothing wrong with this. But it's something for us to just kind of recognize and talk about. We can oversimplify it sometimes, and it causes us to misunderstand it. I think we can also sometimes kind of have an under-realized theology of what it means that we, the church, are actually his body. We can spiritualize it, and it sounds really nice, especially when we want to start making New Testament references to you're the hand, and I'm the eye, and we're all the body. But Scripture seems, and when you take ascension serious, that there is something like sort of profound to the fact that we, the church, are God's human body on earth. Jesus' human body continued. And it gets really confusing and messy, and it can be hard to understand it. And the final reason I think that we can sort of misunderstand ascension is I think that uh, many of us grew up going to passion narrative plays in the church. If you didn't, man, you missed out on some good times. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, like, just, it's okay. But there were these really simple or, or low-budget productions, but there was always somebody that knew how to do some wire work, and, like, this was, like, the person that maybe did theater in high school or college, and this was their moment to shine in the church's play production was because they were going to bring Jesus up into the ceiling at the very end of the play, and the curtains were going to close. So was this only my church that this was like the one like fancy part we did? There was some decent lighting and, and wire work. And they were like, yes, we are going to ascend Jesus. And then you're left with this question of like, where did he go? I remember being a kid and like looking at my mom and being like, is he just in the rafters now? Like what? Because it's a bigger question to what we're thinking about when we're talking about ascension and we're wrestling with what is happening when we're reading Acts 1 and we're looking at this passage, what we begin to do and what we oftentimes end up kind of wrestling with more than what happened here, but is what happened here. We're more worried about what we think that they were seeing than what they were experiencing. We're more worried about how this would play out in a movie or in real life than how it plays out in our everyday life here and now as a believer. We do this with scripture all the time. We've talked about this before. We care more about the whale and if there was actually a whale with Jonah than like understanding what's really going on in that story. And we do the same thing with Acts 1. I am going to date myself here ever so slightly, but when I read this passage, I envision the end of the Matrix where Neo gets off the phone and he hangs it up and he just blasts off into the sky like flying through space. Am I the only one that's seen The Matrix, Mia? Maybe? Andrew got it. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, 
But this is what we do with this passage. We hear it and we start to have images and ideas of what it would mean for someone to fly up into the sky and to disappear. Instead of stopping and thinking about what Luke may be actually trying to tell us in all of this. See, we do this with Scripture in lots of different ways. What we actually are doing when we begin to think about Jesus flying into space, going past Mars like a a planetary video, right? Like he's just going to keep on going into somewhere where heaven may be. Because that's our modern understanding of like the cosmos and cosmology. We have a Hubble telescope. First century Jews did not. They they didn't understand that all of that existed out there. They understood what existed right there in front of them. And so when we think about someone floating up into the sky, we ask questions like, well, where did he go? But that's not what Acts 1 is trying to answer for us. We're importing our modern day view of the cosmos in that moment when we begin to ask those types of questions. And we can do this with Scripture all the time. Think about how we misunderstand Revelation. Think about how we misunderstand moments in the minor and the major prophets where we import what we understand about the world and try to understand what they're talking about in those moments. The flood narrative and how the cosmos are being destroyed. We import things and begin to ask questions of Scripture that Scripture has no intention of answering or talking about. But we're doing it because it's our modern understanding of the world and how the world works. But they didn't get that then. And they they, they didn't have that view. What we see in Acts 1, a good first century Jew or Hebrew, what they would have understood is that the sky is the transcendent realm of God. And that was heaven, what was there. It was a way of talking about God's transcendence and His all being everywhere. And Jesus is being lifted up into that. What we see in verse 9 is he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. If you are familiar with the Old Testament, there are two phrases there that are like blinking, flashing signs. Or like Think of like hyperlinks here. Like if you were reading this on the, on the web, there would be hyperlinks to lift it up and to, to receive into the clouds. All over Isaiah, but specifically Isaiah 52, the suffering servant will be lifted up. The Messiah will be lifted up. Luke is wanting to make us see very clearly that all of the Old Testament was talking about this moment. And Jesus is the fulfillment of it. We've done this all through the Gospels, all through Acts. This is going to continue to happen. We're seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of who they talked about in these prophecies. So if God's transcendent realm, his rule and his reign is in the skies and is in the heavenlies, they're not talking about space and what exists in billions of galaxies away from here. What was that? I just heard? There's like more galaxies in the universe than there are grains of sand on the earth is what scientists currently think. Like that makes your mind start to melt and you're just like, well, how did God go somewhere? Well, what he's saying is, Jesus is transcending into the transcendent realm of God, going somewhere that only God can go. And he's doing so in human form, as the human Jesus. This has profound implications for what that means for me and you. The second reference that you're getting is Daniel 7 and the Son of Man. 
See, in Daniel 7, chapter, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion would be an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Luke isn't so concerned with us being able to visualize Jesus floating up into the sky and continuing on his space adventure without an astronaut suit, although that would be really fun. What he's more concerned with us seeing is that this is who the resurrected Jesus is, the one that will rule and that will reign, and that he is our cosmic high priest forever. That he is interceding beyond our, on our behalf, that he is our cosmic priestly king for all of eternity's future and had been for all of eternity's past. He wants us to understand that this is Jesus and that he is king and lord over all of creation. And this is a pivotal transition in the New Testament because here what we see is Jesus ascending not Jesus becoming absent. I have this on a, a slide, Daniel, if you want to put it up. I think this is a helpful way of understanding what's happening here. In Jesus, God condescends to be Emmanuel, God with us. And in the ascension, Emmanuel ascends that we in him might be with God. This is the whole transition of the gospel stories. And in the New Testament, the pivotal moment, the turn is happening here. Jesus had come to dwell among us, to be human, to take on our humanity, our suffering, our pain, to be with us and near to us. And in his ascension, he does not leave us. He does not abandon us to now be alone and try to figure out how to continue to get to God. He didn't come and show us the way of God for us to then be left to try to figure out how to do it on our own. No, in his ascension, he does not abandon us, but he takes us with us to be with God also. To be near. To be in union with God. Because you see, this is really what the whole of Scripture has been after. This was always the priestly duties that Jesus is now fulfilling completely. To bring union with humanity and with God. To allow for there to be an overlap between heaven and earth. That they would not be separate, though they are two separate things, but they would be in union with one another. This is what Eden was. Eden was a perfect blend in a moment where heaven and earth were fully united together. And what's beautiful is that Adam and Eve were meant to serve as the priest of that. And when I say priest, what I mean is Genesis 1 and 2 are full of this priestly language. When it says that Adam was meant to work the garden, this is the same language that we get from priest, meaning to bless. 
to multiply and to be fruitful is the same idea of blessing and working and worship. There's worship and blessing and priestly language all over Genesis 1 and 2. So Adam and Eve were meant to be the priests, the ones that worked this, the ones that kind of kept this up, that made this happen in concert with God. They were meant to be the tools in the way that his activity on earth was played out. And yet we know that this human project in Genesis 1 and 2 ultimately fails, and we have Genesis 3. So then the rest of the Old Testament is about God's attempt to allow this union of heaven and earth to still take place. To allow this union between God and his creation, between humanity and the Most High Almighty Yahweh to be able to continue to exist. It's the rest of the Old Testament, pretty much, in a very oversimplified way. See, there we go, oversimplifying things, but let's go with it. As you see this work taking place, this is the whole point of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was it was a space where heaven and earth could unite and God could be in perfect union with his humanity and creation. Later on, this becomes what we know as the temple, the holy of holies where God rests and sits so that humanity can come and dwell and be near to him. And the priests then are given these tasks and these activities and this work to go about so that humanity might be able to be blessed, that they could work and that they could do the things of life, and in so doing they could be near to God, and that God could be at union with the people. That has always been his goal, to be at union with his creation. And we see this all through the Old Testament. This is the sacrificial system. This is why Leviticus can seem really kind of daunting, but is like one of the most beautiful books of the Bible because it is about a God that longs to be near and in relationship with his people, to make a way where there was no way to do something that they themselves could not do. And then ultimately, as we know, you can think of John 1 here, that the word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And he came to dwell, he came to tabernacle among us. He came to be the overlap of heaven and earth. He came to be the union of God and humanity. And so we see this happening in space. Uh, when, when I say space, I mean a physical. It's happening in a tent. It's happening in a building. It's happening in a city, in a country. And all the while, we also see it happening within humanity. It's always intended that God's people would be a representation of this, that they themselves would take on the very nature of what the temple is supposed to be, and that they would too would become the overlap of heaven and earth, that they too would be at full union with God and themselves. And we get the fulfillment of both in Jesus and so Jesus takes on these priestly duties, this work of uniting humanity to God. And in his ascension, he allows for that work to continue. Because what happens in the ascension is that Christ ascends into heaven. He becomes seated at the right hand of the Father. But his body becomes us, the church we, his people, become the earthly body of the ascended ruling and reigning priestly king. 
We become the hands and the feet. We become the tools and the instruments by which God's actions and work of the kingdom begin to happen and take place. This is what it means that we would become the priesthood of all believers. There was always an intention that there would be in people a way for them to image God and overlap with what he intended for heaven and earth to be. That we would become living temples, as the New Testament would tell us. Now, I want to make it clear. We individually are not the church. We individually are not the the sole act in which this happens. We are the priest of the thing. Individually, we all take on that mantle to be the priest, which means we all take on the work and the action of seeing this come to fruition by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The very same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the very same Spirit that animates, breathes, and lives in you and I individually and collectively. And so we are all called individually to be the priesthood of all believers to extend this. But it takes us communally and collectively as a whole to be the church, to be the body. You cannot be the body on your own. Now let's go back to 1 Peter here. You cannot be the body if you are just the eye. You are just the eye. This is language we're more familiar with. And so what we have to understand is God's intention to see his work and his union with the earth happen and to take place is that it's meant to happen in a community, in a group of people, not individually, not in isolation. You cannot go out and do this work on, completely on your own. It takes us as a group, as a people to be the church and to be the body. But you have work to do individually. And you have a spirit speaking to you and leading to you and guiding you. And we'll talk more about that next week, about how Pentecost is the animation of that body and of the church. And so we know, too, that we are not the kingdom as the church. We're not the end-all, be-all of it. And that's mystery. And it's sometimes hard for us to like kind of grapple with and reckon with. But we as the church are meant to be the instrument by which the kingdom is ushered in. We are not the kingdom in and of itself. God has bigger plans and ideas than we could ever dream or imagine for the universe and the cosmos as a whole. But we stand in that place, in this moment, being the instrument by which God intends to usher the kingdom in. That is our work. And that is why here at Mosaic, it's our mission statement that we would be a people that are about seeing heaven come to, or see the kingdom come to Birmingham as it is in heaven. I write it in about everything that I possibly can if you read any of the stuff that I ever write in terms of the church. Because I think that that is what matters and this is how we do it. And we're able to do that because Christ sits at the right hand of the Father in human form, ascended but not absent as our cosmic priest and king. With him sitting enthroned at the right hand of the Father, fully human, we are joined to him. And that is what it means for us to be his body. As he remains there, bringing our humanity before the Father, redeeming it and repurposing it so that we might be able to do the thing which we were intended to do all the way back to Eden which is be an overlap of heaven and earth. 
this union begins to be realized as we give ourselves over to Jesus. I think this is what it means to become fully aflame and one with God. Is that there's such a perfect union and transition with God that is possible and that can happen with humanity that just as we are with the Godhead one and three, we begin to like kind of question and wonder where it is that Jonathan ends and God begins. I believe that that type of union is possible. I believe that someone can encounter Nicole and they can encounter God fully. I believe that as people walk into these spaces and places where the church is gathered together, that the union with God amongst that people can be so strong and tangible that it is the same as encountering God himself. In the same way it was in Hebrews 1 that declares that Jesus was the very imprint and nature of God and any that met Jesus met with the Father. This is the call and task of the church and this is why ascension matters because it makes this possible That excites me to be the church in a day and a time where it's really, really easy to just dunk on the church and talk about all the things that it's done wrong and terrible and when it's really easy to look around and say, yeah, but what about all these things? You can hold this up and say, but this is more beautiful than anything that we could fail to do. This is is more exciting to me that we can be participants in this and that this is who Jesus is and I cannot shake that or leave that. It makes me excited to be Mosaic Birmingham. It makes me hopeful that regardless of what we've gone through or have been through, the difficulties, the trials, the tribulations, whether individually or collectively, that we can be this, that we can be the very hands and feet of God here in Birmingham. That we can sit with people in their pain and their suffering, knowing that God is nearer to them because he is nearer to us. We have an opportunity to be the church, and that is a great joy and honor. Makes me excited to be a Christian. Makes me excited to be a believer because I know who rules and reigns over all. And I will give my life to him. You see it continue in through Hebrews all the way through chapter 7. You see Jesus stepping into this role. And there's this beautiful passage at the end of Hebrews that is on all of this. It's Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 6. Saying, now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord. Not by mere human beings. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifice, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. And this is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. So we come to communion, we're reminded of this promise of Jesus, the mediator and author of a better and truer covenant, one that allows us to step into what it means to be human and God's intent and design. 
we're reminded of God's sacrifice in giving us his son, the body broken, the blood poured out in order that we might be covered and invited into full unity and communion. It's the joy of being a follower of Jesus. There's this really uh, interesting story, or, or I guess it's a, not necessarily a story, but Teresa of Alva, she has this saying, a, a way of talking about what it means to be imprinted by God. And in Hebrews 1, what we're talking about when it's the very imprint of God, the very character of God, that's the Greek word where we get our English word character, it's the same phrasing as there is from a signet that imprints into wax. Jesus is that. He, he is the very imprint. She talks about what it means for a wax to be melted. She says to the wax that it might be something quite painful and difficult. She's referencing pain and suffering in the life of what it means to step into these things. She says, to the wax, it may be quite painful to be melted, but it readies it to be able to receive the imprint of the signet. And as we come to communion and we think about what it meant for Jesus and his pain and his suffering to be the very imprint of God, I'm reminded in these moments and the difficulties, struggles, and turmoils that we may find ourselves in, what we are being offered is being made ready to receive the very imprint of God in our lives. And so though I speak about it joyously and excitingly, and though it may seem like something that is just amazing and fun, we also recognize the pain and the difficulty in it, the suffering and the sacrifice that it will take. And even we as the church, collectively, we understand that it has been a difficult time and we find the hardships and the struggles in it. But what we're promised in Scripture is that no suffering is ever wasted. I do not think that God cosmically decides that you should all suffer. But I think what is so beautiful is that He promises to redeem your suffering. That nothing in your life would be wasted. And so in that moment, what He is doing is He is readying you for His imprint, His character, His mark. So that you can be the hands and the feet. That you can live fully at union and as one with him. So as the band comes up and as they begin to play, if you have your cups that I referenced. You can peel them apart. Peel them apart. You take the bread that is to call and remember God's body broken and given for us in order that we might receive the sustenance and provision of God and eat. Take the cup that is the promise of God's forgiveness, his blood poured out for our sins, and we drink. In doing so, we do so to remember and to recall the life and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The one who has come to earth 
in order to take on our suffering, our pain, our humanity, live, died, buried, resurrected, and ascended, sitting, interceding for us at the right hand of the Father in order that we might live into the life and union of God and humanity. Amen.